and see through their lens, particularly the vision of Isaiah of this first Christmas morning, so to speak, um, about the birth of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and first, go. Uh, um, you're in Isaiah. We, but go ahead and turn to Micah 5.2. I'm already there. I'll go ahead and read it. But this was written about 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And Micah 5.2, it says, But thou, Bethlehem, Epaphrodite, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been, have been from of old, from everlasting. You're talking about one. There would be a king that would come and rule over Israel, and that he would be born in the small town of Bethlehem. And he would be coming, but he would have been from of old. There's the time, there's the place where he would be born flesh, but that he was actually, his goings forth had been from of old, from everlasting. And so we see that Micah names the place where Christ was to be born. About 700 years before it happened. After 700 years with so many intervening events, there was little likelihood that one in the line of David would be born in Bethlehem. It was almost entirely out of the question. The odds were against it. It is very possible that no members of the family of David were even living in Bethlehem at this time. They were scattered. The dispersion had um, driven them from the land. And there was at least one family in the line of David living in Nazareth. Yet Bethlehem must be the place that he would be born, where the Son of God would come. And the prophecy, this prophecy was the sole basis on what the scribes directed the wise men on where Christ was to be born. No doubt the wise men have read in Daniel and saw the time frame when the Messiah was to come. But they must not have read Micah where it actually mentions the place because they first end up coming through Jerusalem. But then the scribes tell them, well, when he's coming, we don't know when he's coming, but it's supposed to be in Bethlehem. And so he ends up going there. One of the aspects that sometimes goes unremarked is God's sovereignty. That we see that God exercised His sovereign control over the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the birth of Christ. Again, humanly speaking, it didn't make sense that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The Jews have been scattered abroad. And it had to be someone from the line of David, which both Joseph and Mary are. The world would have said that Caesar Augustus was the ruler. But yet we see God was the one in control. He used a decree from Caesar Augustus, the decree of the taxing, to move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born 
where the prophet Micah said he would be born. And so Christmas is really the story of God working to fulfill His prophetic promises so that everything would happen just like He said it would happen. That none of His words would fall to the ground. But everything that He um, inspired through the prophets to speak would come to pass. Isaiah 7. And we see a miraculous birth. Isaiah was written around between 701 to 681 B.C. So again, about 700 years before Jesus was even to be born. Isaiah 7 and verse 13, it says, And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Now there's going to be this great sign. There's going to be this miracle. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You know what the skeptics want to say today? There's no way a virgin could give birth. Exactly! That's why it's a miracle! This wasn't God just orchestrating through the natural course of nature that He designed, but He was doing something above and beyond that, supernatural, that a child would be born of a virgin and shall call His name Emmanuel. The virgin birth was a miracle. And a virgin birth was a necessity because salvation must ultimately come from God. As Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. The Bible says if righteousness were able to come by the law, doing good works, doing good deeds, obeying God, if righteousness was able to come by that, then it would. That we'd be able to get saved that way. But as the Scriptures conclude that we all fall short of the glory of God. That there's not one of us without sin except for Jesus Christ. But because we have sin, keeping the law cannot save any of us. Doing any sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism, saying Hail Marys, whatever it may be, it can never offer forgiveness of sins. Going to a booth to speak with a priest, to ask for forgiveness. You didn't sin against the priest. The priest has no power to forgive sin. Only Jesus has power. And that's why they said the Pharisees thought it was blasphemy when Jesus said, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Because they're like, you being but a man, how can you forgive sin? It's because he was much more than just a man. And so the virgin birth was a necessity because salvation must ultimately come from God. Not of our works. Not of anything that we would do. Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. After Thessalonians, but 
1 Timothy 3, verse 16. It says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He's saying this isn't a controversial thing. We make it controversial today, but he says, without controversy, greatest mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. You know, a lot of the newer versions err here, and they take God out, and they say He was manifest in the flesh. And the Jehovah Witnesses, they would say He is Michael the Archangel. That He was manifest in the flesh. Well, the Bible says of Jesus, He took not on the seed of angels. He's not Michael the Archangel. Jesus took on the seed of humanity. And the Greek word here, I mean, is theos. Which means what our English Bible, the King James Bible says, God was manifest in the flesh. Almighty God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believe on in the world, receive up into glory. You know, if we think of other possible ways in which Christ could have come to the earth, none of them would so clearly unite humanity and deity. God is one person. It may have been possible for God to make Jesus completely human in heaven and then have Him come down without the benefit of any human parent. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are. He wouldn't be part of the human race that physically descended from Adam. If perhaps it would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two parents, both a father and mother, and with His full divine nature miraculously unite God and man together, But then it would have been hard to really comprehend how Jesus could have been fully God if He completely had two parents like we did and He would have inherited the sinful nature from His father, Joseph, if it was to happen that way. And so there's different possibilities. We think, you know, all things are possible with God, but God in His great wisdom, we see what He did. That He ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ. That His full humanity would be evident by us by a human birth. And His full deity from the conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit conceiving Jesus in the womb of Mary. The virgin birth made it possible for the incarnation of God in the flesh. That there be full deity that Jesus wasn't born of an earthly father, but had an earthly mother, but His Father was God the Father. Matthew chapter 1, you could turn there. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. 
And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which being interpreted is God with us. Emmanuel. Meaning that God would be with us. That God would be in the flesh. The virgin birth was a necessity because it was the only possible way of bringing for true humanity to come about without inherited sin. If you read in Romans 5, you see that, that the sinful nature is passed from man. Not from woman. We see that Galatians talks about how Jesus being made of a woman. But without the help of a man. Sin passed by Adam. Man who took, um, who took, the, who took the fruit first. It was Eve that took the fruit first. But the responsibility... Her head was Adam. And Adam took the fruit, which the Bible says, who was with her. Instead of taking leadership and saying, no, this isn't what we're going to do, and, and I'm getting rid of the fruit, whatever the fruit um, was. And, and what we see, Adam partook with her. And the sinful nature that we inherit comes through man. You know, we could ask, you know, why didn't Jesus inherit a sinful nature from Mary? It's because the sinful nature that God holds us account comes through Adam, who represents all of the human race. The Catholic Church attempts to answer this question with what they call the Immaculate Conception by saying that Mary herself was free from sin. If that was the case... Why didn't she get the sinful nature from her father? She was born of a man and a woman. So how would she have been sinless? The reality is, biblically, she was not sinless. She was a sinner just like all of us are. But the responsibility of the sin, the sinful nature, passes from the man. And that's why the virgin birth was necessary. In Luke 1, in verse 46, we see that Mary needed a Savior. It says, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. If she was without sin, she would not need a Savior. But she was with sin. And so she needed Jesus just as much as all of us do. And she even goes, For he had regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. She realized, you know what, she was low. She, she wasn't worthy to even be the way that God would have Jesus Christ to be born. He says, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. And what a blessing it would be to give birth to the Savior. She was called, she, surely she would be called blessed. But she was not called co-redeemer. 
She was not called co-mediator. She was not called the queen of heaven. You know, you can look in the Old Testament and the queen of heaven was a pagan goddess, a false goddess. It's not a title Mary had. She would be called blessed. But she likewise needed a savior. She needed a mediator. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and man. Not two, not three. One mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. There's other miracles surrounding the central miracle of the virgin birth. You have the angelic announcements. You have the timing of the tap scene. Bringing Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. You have the arrival of the wise men. You also see that he has other names that are mentioned or other titles. Go ahead, turn to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, and it was read during the reading earlier today. Isaiah 9 in verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born. And again, this is speaking in present tense, but it's a prophecy of what was to come in the future. 700 years later. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Called wonderful, that babe in the manger would be called wonderful. He would have a wonderful birth. He would have a wonderful life. You see, and you read about his life that he was moved with compassion. That he went and preached to the poor. That he went and he would make the blind to be able to see. The deaf. To be able to hear. The dumb to be able to speak. He would be called wonderful. That he would feed the 5,000. He would feed the 7,000. Which also some of those passages say beside them were women and children also. So there could have been about 20,000 or so that were being fed. Jesus was moved with compassion. We see with Lazarus that he raised him from the dead. We see the woman that had an issue with blood and then that she would be healed by touching his garment. And Jesus said, Thy faith have made thee whole. What a wonderful Savior he is. Isaiah says, His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. He understands our troubles. So what a great counselor does. Try to understand. To, um, to show empathy and sympathy of, of what you're going through. And, and, and as the Bible says in Nahum that we've been preaching through and we'll be preaching through the next two weeks. A book about God's judgment. And it's fierce. But in the midst of that, It says, the Lord is our stronghold in the day of trouble. That He's our stronghold. That when judgment comes down, that if we're in Christ, 
He is that stronghold. He is that tower, that refuge that we could run to. He understands our troubles. He cares and is capable. He's compassionate. And there's no problem too big for Him to handle. The Bible says He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That was His deity that was able to withstand the sin. But in His flesh, in His humanity, in His weakness, He understands what we go through when we are tempted. And so He's able to be our counselor, our consoler. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. You know, there's people that they want to debate about whether Jesus is God or not. You know, we've already read Scriptures that talk about Jesus being worshipped. That the Bible says God was manifest in the flesh. And here the Bible saying He would be called the mighty God. The mighty God. You know, God doesn't share His glory with anyone else. But Him in His triunity of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. These three are one. As 1 John 5, 7 says that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. All things are possible with Him. You know, like John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word dwelt among us. He was made flesh. We see that even the wind and the seas obeyed Him. He says, peace, be still. And nature obeys Him. This isn't talking about just a human being obeying a command. This is nature obeying Him. And death could not hold Him. They put the mighty God to death, buried three days, but He rose again. Death has no victory over Him because He is called, likewise, the everlasting Father. Jesus said, my Father and I are one. You know, when Jesus said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The scribes, the Pharisees, they're like, this took years. Well, it was 50 years to build. And you're not yet 40 years old? And you say you're going to build it in three days? But he was speaking of his temple, his body. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Remember when Moses was speaking with the burning bush? And he says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, tell him that I am have sent you. I am that I am. That He is eternally existent. Pre-existent. Before creation. As He is the Creator. And they took up stones. Accused Jesus of blasphemy. Because they understood Him saying that He was that I Am. That spoke to Moses. 
And you know what the Bible speaks about Moses? About how he saw his day and was glad. Speaking about Christ. We see he's called the everlasting Father. Because him and the Father are one. And as he said before Abraham was, I am. And he offers everlasting life. That whosoever would believe on him shall have everlasting life and never perish. But the Bible says, talk, speaks of those that believe not have the wrath of God abiding upon them. But Jesus came that you could escape that wrath. That when the day of trouble comes, He could be your strong tower. He is called the Prince of Peace. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You know, Romans 5.1 talks about how we could have peace with God. That we could have salvation in Jesus. That when we receive Jesus as our own Savior, that we're able to be at peace with God. That, that while we are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, while we are enemies of God, that through Jesus, He reconciles God and man together. And we're able to have peace with God. And in Philippians 4, 6-7, talks about the Christian. That not only could we have the peace with God, we could have the peace of God. That we can have a peace that passes all understanding. Great peace have they whose mind is stayed on thee. In the name Jehovah, the Lord. In Isaiah 9 and verse 7, it says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God will perform his word. And you know what many of the apostles, many of the people, they were looking for Jesus to set up this kingdom. And that's why they left in despair when he died. They missed it, even though he told them, you know what, I must suffer. I must die, but I will raise again this third day. They missed it. They thought their ruler had died. You know, this is something that's yet to come. But just as the first coming of Christ happened, his second coming will happen. His government will bring peace to the world. You know, he's see over in the Middle East. And not just the Middle East. Nations of the world panicking and enraged just with the announcement of moving the United States Embassy to Jerusalem. Why is that such a big deal? It's because there is a demonic, satanic oppression of Israel who God calls His people. Now, just to clarify, okay, no one has salvation outside of Jesus Christ. 
Someone is not saved just because they're of Jewish lineage. The Bible, that's what the Bible calls them. You know what? They are enemies of the gospel. Yet, for the Father's sake, they are beloved. That they are still God's chosen people as a nation. And this, the Bible talks about with Abraham. That those that will bless your seed shall be blessed. But they that curse your seed would be cursed. And the Bible speaks about how if in God's sovereignty, God will use the wicked to bring all nations against Israel. And that's what you saw at the United Nations these past couple of weeks. The nations coming against Israel. They're a small country the size of about New Jersey. Again, what's the big deal about such a small people group? Satanic. You know, you see Satan influence Herod and try to have the children two years and under kill that the Messiah would die before his time. Oh, God's sovereignty is much greater than any plan Satan would bring about. But we see that all nations will come against Israel. You know what the Bible talks about when he returns? You know what? There's going to be the Jewish witnesses. They're going to be during the Daniel 70th week. They're going to be um, preaching Christ. They're going to be preaching the gospel then. And many will start calling upon the Lord. And then he will come down upon Mount Olives. And they'll see whom they have pierced. That he was wounded in the house of his friends. And he will set up his kingdom. He will destroy all these nations. All the other nations will become under tribute under Jesus Christ. And he'll be ruling from Jerusalem. It won't even be an embassy. That's where his kingdom will be. Which his kingdom will really go over the whole earth. And peace will be in the land. See the Palestinians, they're all in a rage. You know what? They were already in a rage before that announcement. They always will be. They hate God's people. Just as they hate God's people in the sense of Christians. They hate Christianity. We don't have time to go all these scriptures, but in Isaiah 11:4, you see the poor will receive equity. They'll receive. They'll, 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 they'll be taken care of. That they'll receive justice. We live in a day and age that those that have the money are able to hire all the attorneys, hire the lawyers, and win a case that they should not justly win. You know, the poor will have justice then. We see them in the enmity between animals will end. There won't be the predators and the prey. God's peace is simply going to bring peace amongst them. There'll be no more danger to man from animals. Isaiah 11, 6 to 8. In verse 9, we see violence will be taken from the earth. In Isaiah 35, we see that the entire earth will become productive. We'll be able to bear fruit. We see in verse 10 of Isaiah 35, that great joy will characterize his kingdom. 
Isaiah saw much more than just the birth of Jesus. He saw his future kingdom. But you know, he also foretold of his suffering. Isaiah 50 in verse 6. Go ahead and turn there. And then we're going to be going to 53 after that. By Isaiah 50. In verse 6, another prophecy. It says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. You know, in Matthew 26, verse 67, a New Testament fulfillment, it says, Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. And they mocked him. Say, you save others! Save yourself from the cross. Come down, save yourself. They would smite him, hit him with a reed, and say, who was it that hit thee? Mocking the Creator. Isaiah 53. Again, remember this 700 years approximately before Jesus would be born in the flesh. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who would believe our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? You know, there's some that believe, but there's many that don't. And we see as of now, the nation of Israel, as of now, is a whole, do not believe. There's a remnant that still does, just like with us Gentiles. Not everyone believes. Some do. But he goes, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He have no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Speaking of Jesus, that when Jesus would come, he would be just like us. He would look average. There wouldn't be like you see in some paintings. There wasn't a halo, and his face was not shining. There was no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. It would have been a brutal thing to see the crucifixion. He was despised and we esteem him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. People say, you know what? This man is being punished by God, the Father. And you know what? He was. Not for any fault of his, though. But for our sin. Because of what we did. The Bible says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. You 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord have laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. You know, they mocked him. He didn't fight back. He did not open his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his sharers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. See that with Herod and Pilate. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. You know, we see that when he was crucified, he had two criminals beside him. And you know what? Those criminals made a choice. They both started off mocking him. But one of them continued to mock him. Rejected Christ just like the rest did. But then the other said, Lord, remember me in thy kingdom. He received Christ. Jesus said, today... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. He made his grave of the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. He's made as an offering for our sin. You know what? Some churches will teach that when they take Mass, that it is a continual offering. That the bread, that the wine literally turns into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that it's a regular sacrifice. And oh, as Hebrews says, you know what, there may be these priests, they offer the same sacrifices over and over again, but they cannot take away sin. But Jesus was offered once. To die for us. That He was bruised. That the iniquity of us all was laid upon Him. Those that reject Him, those that receive Him, their iniquities were laid upon Him. But there is no application of salvation. No atonement unless it is received. It's in the days of Israel when they were in bondage of Egypt. And God said to take the lamb and, 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 and put the blood on the doorpost. Well, they, they could have had a lamb, but if they did not do that, there would have been no blood. It was a picture that without the shedding of blood of the lamb of God, who would be Jesus Christ, there is no remission of sins. Now in Isaiah 8.14... You know, we see that there's people that could see Jesus of one of two ways. 
He is the rock. But he could be either a stone of stumbling or a solid rock of faith. Isaiah 8.14 says, And he shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. For again, mean a trap, and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble and fall, and be broken, and be snared, and be taken. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Fast forward to Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did he never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But people stumbled. They rejected it. They didn't want to think He was the only way to salvation. But that they would be able to gain salvation by any means they could try to. They would try to please the gods, the false gods, by their own doings. Or even trying to please the true God by their own works. But we're all guilty of sin. And so even our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. That's our righteousness. That's not the bad things about us. That's our righteousness are as filthy rags. It's not righteous enough. It is tainted with sin. Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. So with Jesus, there's some, they stumble upon him. There's others, they believe on him and they build their house upon the rock, the foundation, so to speak. Some stumble and are offended by the gospel and resist him. Others trust in Christ to be their rock, their foundation of faith. And what's it going to be for you this Christmas? Are you going to stumble over the gospel message, the Christmas message, or are you going to embrace it and believe on it? Many years ago, and we'll end with this, was a wealthy man who shared a passion for art collecting with his son. They had many priceless works. You say priceless, but it was worth a lot of price. They were extremely valuable. That he would collect all these famous paintings. As winter approached, war engulfed the nation. The young man left to serve his country. After only a few short weeks, his father received a telegram that his son had died in war. Distraught and lonely, the old man faced the upcoming Christmas holidays with anguish, grief, sorrow. The joy of the season had vanished with the death of his son. On Christmas morning, a knock on the door came and it woke him. He was depressed. So he walked to the door 
He saw the masterpieces of art on his walls, and it just reminded him that he could not share in that hobby with his son any longer. He opened the door and was greeted by a soldier with a large package in his hands. And he said, I was a friend of your son. I was the one he was rescuing when he died. May I come in for a few moments and show you something? Soldier mentioned that he was an artist and that he gave the old man the package. And inside the package was a painting of his son. The world would not think it is a great artwork. But to the man, to the father, it meant a lot as it had his facial features in such striking detail. Overcome with emotion, the man hung that portrait above his fireplace, pushing aside the artwork that was worth thousands and millions of dollars. And once he was done, he sat in his chair, spent Christmas just looking at that gift. The painting of his son became his most prized possession, far eclipsing all the valuable artwork that museums around the world coveted. The following spring, the old man died. The art world waited with anticipation for the upcoming auction. According to the will of the man, all the artworks would be auctioned on Christmas Day, the day he had received what he felt was his greatest gift. The same day he arrived, and art collectors from around the world gathered to bid on some of the world's most spectacular paintings. Dreams would be fulfilled that day. The auction began with a painting that was not on anyone's museum list. It was the painting of the man's son. The auctioneer asked for an opening bid. Silence. He goes, all right, starting off at $100. Anybody want? No one spoke, and then finally someone said, who cares about that painting? It's just a picture of his son. Let's move on to the good stuff. The auctioneer responded, no, we have to sell this one first. Now who will take the son? Finally, a neighbor of the old man offered $10. He said, that's all I have. I knew the boy, um, so I would like it. The auctioneer said, going once, going twice, gone. Chairs filled the room. People were excited. Now we're getting to the good stuff. One of them even shouted and said, Now we can bid on the real treasures. The auctioneer looked at the room filled with people and announced that the auction was over. Everyone was stunned. Someone spoke up and said, What do you mean it's over? We didn't come for a picture of someone's son. We came for all these masterpieces. There's millions of dollars worth of art here. What's going on? The auctioneer replied, it's very simple. According to the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets all. The message is the same this Christmas. Because of the Father's love, the Heavenly Father 
whoever takes the son gets it all. Sarah, if you could please come play invitation. It's through the Son of God that we're able to receive Christ, that we're able to have salvation, that we're able to have eternal life, a life that does not perish. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? You've received a son. You could have eternal life. Let's all go ahead and stand. Heads bowed, eyes closed. It's the song place. Will you take Christ this Christmas? Will you marvel about Him? You move for Him. Get out the message of His grace, His comfort, His redemption, His forgiveness. I'm going to ask a question, personal question, no one looking around. But if you don't know, if you died today, that heaven would be your home. If you don't know Jesus as your own Savior, but you want to have that assurance, you want to know that when you die, that you know you have eternal life, that you don't want Jesus' death to be a waste for you. He already paid the price, but it must be received. It must be believed. If you don't know Jesus is your Savior, but you would like to know, please raise your hand. No one else looking around. But raise your hand if you do not have that assurance. But you would like to know. You know, if it's a man, I'll have a man... Um, come, he'll come talk to you, take you in the room, show you from the Bible how you can know you're saved. If you're a lady, have a lady. There's a couple. And by the rest of your testimonies, I would assume either you know Christ, you know you have eternal life, or you're just afraid. Is Jesus going to be that stone of stumbling to you? Or is he going to be that solid rock for you that you could trust in? Plead with you. You know what? Talk to me after the service. Or raise your hand now. And we'll have someone talk to you how you can know for sure you have eternal life. Christians, you know what? All year long, Let's be delivering the Christmas message that Jesus, God in the flesh, made a way of salvation. He didn't have to make, but He did. What a wonderful God we serve. We who sinned. We who were at fault. We who were doomed to a lake of fire. To taste the second death, which there will be no saving from then. It will be too late. The rich man in hell asked, Can you send Lazarus just to bring me drops of water to cool my tongue? It wouldn't cool his tongue even if he was able to. 
but he was so thirsty, being tormented in flames. You know, God's the God of justice. You know, I think most of us despise when a murderer, a child molester, just gets and get, gets, walks out of jail free. Justice isn't served. You know, God's a God of justice. And those that die in their sin will pay for their sin. But just as God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach to them, to tell them to repent, to turn to the Lord, God wants to offer His grace, His mercy before it's too late. He's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God gives us a space of time to turn to Him. The Bible says, Behold, today is the day of salvation, that our life is but as a vapor, that appeareth for a little while, but vanisheth away. You know, that's your neighbor's It's your friends. It's your family members. Maybe you. But in Jesus, there's eternal life. That when this life vanishes away, you know what? To die is gain because we'd be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your Son, that we could have it all through Jesus, eternal life, the abundant life, things that wealth, prosperity don't bring, but we can have the true abiding joy in Jesus. Thank you for sending your Son for us. And Lord, may your spirit move us to be more ready to share the gospel with people, with our neighbors, our friends. Maybe make them a Christmas bread or something. Go talk to them. Bake something for them. Show hospitality. Build a relationship that they may point to a greater relationship that's found in you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we're going to be having an evening service.